0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, My name is Jenny Choi. I am an associate director of the academic and student programs here at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm also a senior fellow in the F.A. Hyatt program for advanced study in philosophy, politics, and economics, as well as a senior research fellow with the Mercatus Center. I am here today with Dr. Diego Isenia. Um, He is currently an associate professor of economics at Universidad de Rosario in Bogota, uh, Colombia. He's also the research affiliate at the um, Economic Science Institute at Chapman University. Previously, he was an assistant professor of economics at Universidad Francisco um, Marroquín in uh, Guatemala, and also the director of Central Vernon Smith the Economía Um, experimental while he was um, there he earned his PhD in economics at George Mason University in 2007 where he was also a social change fellow with the Mercatus Center. Thank you so much for joining us today uh, with us, Diego. Thank
2: you for having me, Jenny.
1: Um, so I thought we would um, talk about what your experience was like here at George Mason while you're a student here. Now you're also an alum with us, so you, there's, there's a very long history here already. And also um, talk about, uh, you know, I know you use experimental economics for your research, so how it kind of connects in and everything with your research here.
2: So uh, my experience here was great. Now I have to put a caveat on that in the sense that looking back, I think I was not prepared for grad school when I, when I was here. So you know, it took me a little while to get settled. I think I'm finally getting settled right now. So it's been a long process. Uh, but yes, I do use experiments for my research. Uh, lately, I've been using experiments to try to better understand social norms and the the role that social norms play uh, in you know, for, for different institutions. So specifically, right now we have some research projects where we're trying to uh, understand the shape of the social norms space. Uh, no, meaning or you know, different type of descriptive injunctive norms, different type of perception on norms and how that all interacts.
1: So it makes me wonder, right, like um, social norms is a very um, important um, aspect of understanding human behavior and why we choose certain things. And while other people would choose one thing, we wouldn't choose another. Uh, why the experimental method, though? Because you would, one might think it's not the best suited methodology for this so why would you go out use that one
2: that's a great question so partly i use it because that's one of my the main tools i have uh but partly because i think you know experiments allow us to isolate certain variables and to measure certain variables in a different way that can be done you know like through other tools so anthropologists have looked at social norms for a while mainly you know like using sort of like participant observant uh, type of uh, methods i think social norms allow us uh, give us a different angle a different take on how to look at social norms and how to try to measure and capture social norms so essentially one of the things we do is we use kind of coordination games and try to you know like incentivize belief tasks to try to get at the shared perception and the beliefs that other have, other individuals have regarding the behavior of others and the normative component that others might have towards you know, certain actions in a particular situation.
1: So um, for, your, um, for that particular research that you're, um, you're uh, describing right now, uh, what results um, have you found in that particular uh, project?
2: Okay, so uh, the project is still ongoing. Right now we have data from, I believe, eight countries. Oh, that's eight awesome. countries. Okay. So we're looking at this cross-culturally. We're still collecting additional data. Um, and one of the things we find is social... Uh, in that particular project, we're looking at social norms regarding cheating behavior or dishonesty mm, okay. across societies. So one of the things we find is social norms matter for dishonest behavior that's perhaps not particularly surprising but as i said before one of the things we're trying to do is sort of like explore the shape of the norm space so we look at both descriptive norms meaning how individuals expect others to behave in a situation where they can be dishonest for a personal gain and uh, injunctive norms meaning the shared perception about how socially appropriate or inappropriate uh notes uh lying or cheating behavior can be uh, in in this context. So one of the things we find is, you know, descriptive norms matter. Injunctive norms matter, but not as one would expect just, you know, like injunctive norms having a direct effect on the level of cheating. Actually, what we find is that that the different types, the different perception of the normative types, uh, meaning, you know, the people who have a perception of the norm being consequentialist in the sense that the, the, the larger the extent of the lie, the, the more socially inappropriate it is, hmm. have a different uh, behavior than people who tend to, to have a deontic perception of the norms. Meaning that, you know, regardless of the extent of the lie, it is just equally socially inappropriate any extent of the lie. So people who have a more deontic perception of the norms when they lie they tend to lie to the maximal extent more than uh, people who have a different perception of the norms
1: that's actually pretty interesting because um you would think that depending on what they're lying about like my 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 sort of intuition is if i'm going to lie i'm going um I'm, it's going to it may depend on whether I think it's going to be like a big thing or a small thing. And then depending on whether it's a big thing or a small thing, I might go maximal cheating if, you, if I can term it, uh, describe it that way, or I might do some other variant level of cheating. And yet here you are saying that you found evidence that when certain type of people, when they, che- uh, when they cheat or lie, um, they'll go maximum no matter what. And there's going to be some people um, who don't do that,
2: I guess. Right. So, in you know, and that's one of the good things about this experiment is that it allows us to measure, I mean, one of the advantages and disadvantages of using this particular tool is that it, it allows us to measure this in a very precise controlled environment. Now, of course, that's also one of the limitations, right? Because right. we're measuring the norm about this very particular environment. Mm-hmm. Now, we see this as, you know, like a starting point in, in a, in a mm-hmm. research agenda. So, individuals... Who have the ontic type norms? So it's more about the type of the individual and the classified according to the perception of the norms that determines the extent of the of the lying.
1: Oh, that's that's absolutely fascinating, and I, um, so, and with experiments, it's. It's it's a type of tool that allows us to control the environment that um, our particular uh, subjects and students are in, which allows you to measure this type of particular type of um, behavior. Now. My curiosity is how far do you think we can generalize from this particular experiment? Because I, do, I use experiments too, and I'm very cautious about saying things like, you know making general statements about what we can say about human behavior. And oftentimes I hear myself making a very strong caveat, like in this particular environment, market environment that I have, here's what I found now if you believe what we have done then these are the things i could say but that's the only thing i could say i can't go
2: any further that that's a, that's a great question and as as you know we, we experimentalists we face that question all the time you know like about the external validity or the generalizability of our experimental results now I think this question is overemphasized for experiments and particularly for lab experiments because I think this, you know, this question applies to any type of empirical research. Uh now having said that, I think at, in the end the the true question uh, or the true answer to this question is an empirical matter in the sense that, you know, we need more type of experiments to try to um, more more experiments along similar lines to try to uh, explore the edge of the validity or, you know, like, how well these experiments replicate in, in different circumstances and in different situations. Now, in that sense, it's not different from other lines of empirical right. research. You know, people right. using field experiments, they face the same, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the same question or the same problem. You know, if you do a randomized control trial of uh, dewarming or giving, you know, uh, books to kids in, in, a, you know, in, a, in a village in, in Africa, does that extend to the US, to Latin America? You know, like, will, will that, does that same relationship will still hold in 20 years? You know, that, that is an empirical question that- no, that's you know, right. We don't know. What we can say is, you know, like, if we have our methods that are adequate and, and properly implemented, we should have at least internal validity regarding, you know, the, the results that really apply to, to the particular context that we're studying. But the, the external validity question, I think it's a very important question that we need you know, to run more experiments and more data in order to be able to provide a better answer.
1: Right. So um, right now, our conversation turned a little bit away from your, um, from your own research into so just in general about experimental economics. Now, I know I understand that when you were here at George Mason, you were also working with Vernon Smith, one of uh, our great hero, Nobel Prize winner of economics in um, 2002, I believe. Um, what was it like working with him? And also, were you here when he, was, he, when he won the award?
2: Yes. So I was here when he received uh, the award. And I did work with him, for, you know, during my dissertation, and I'm currently working with him uh, right now on a project. And it's a, you know, it's very exciting. It's a, it's a great, humbling experience because, you know, I think. Because Vernon is a very deep thinker, yes, and you know, so he's
1: a, a wide reader too. A I mean, very I mean, wide I, he, reader. He um he has a physics background from yes. Caltech, so you know he's a smart guy. But not just that. From what I hear, he read like I don't know, like philosophy, a whole bunch of things when he was, I mean, know at even before he became um, like a PhD. Like I know he was already reading, and I'm just like, I don't have, you know, like how do you find all this time to like connect? make connections across different disciplines and all of
2: that. That's exactly right. He Mm -hmm. has read in so many disciplines that it's amazing, it's impressive, but I think that gives him a very, very deep perspective Mm -hmm. and a different angle, you know, like when, when someone who has just been trained... In economics, you know, looks at results from an experiment. I think you see that differently than people who have a more interdisciplinary background, and I—that's definitely his case. In addition, for you know, that he's really smart and a deep thinker. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in that sense, it's a, you know, very encouraging, and it gives a, a different opportunity to learn about how to interpret results and how to do research. But at the same time it's very humbling because you know such a smart and well recognized person you know, is willing to listen and discuss and exchange ideas with anyone yeah. so that that is very humbling
1: No, that's right. Um, um, I've I've also met, um, actually, I've never actually um, personally spoken to Vernon, but of course I see him from afar, and he's been to uh, George Mason a few times for various events over the years. And, you know, every time I see him from afar, it's as if there's like some sort of like um, a halo around him, and everybody gravitates towards him, and everybody wants to hear what his thoughts are, and he's open to all of them. So I'm not actively part of the conversation. This is when I was a grad student. I'm even more more sort of scared, right, to speak to someone who's right. like, oh, my God, he's at the forefront of our field. Um, but just listening to him speak to everyone and give his thoughts, it was like one of those things where I was like, wow, like I had no idea. My, um, I had it was it was amazing and impressive and awesome to see him to spend all that time entertaining all sorts of questions and all sorts of topics
2: th- th- that's right what you said and and what's even more impressive is that he's not only willing to entertain questions and give his thoughts but he's very genuinely interested mm-hmm. in listening mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. what people have that's to right. say so you know yeah. he loves to attend liberty fund conferences but but he's in genuinely interested in hearing you know like the perspectives from other participants from different disciplines so in that sense that's kind of what I was trying to get at when I said that it was a humbling experience because, you know, like you have this very smart person, very deep thinker, uh, very recognized, you know, like willing to give time and listen to my thoughts for a few minutes, you know, that's very humbling.
1: Yeah, and it's actually, uh, and so watching him and along with other um, professors here at Georgia Mesa, just see them um, have such a wide perspective. It was very, uh, very new and also odd experience for me because i did um econ undergrad i went into undergrad knowing that i wanted to do econ and after i did that i went straight to master's econ i straight and went straight so i had a very sort of like a straight arrow path to my academic career and for um vernon and also listen to pete becky and other people talk about like this is how we think about economics it's not about you know like cost benefit analysis it's about human behavior we got to consider it very seriously i was just like whoa like mind blown like uh, it was it was just a very odd eye-opening experience once i came to mason for them to be talking about what dardry mccloskey calls the humanomics right yeah. like the human portion of um economics yeah.
2: and, and 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 you're right i think that- the domain of economics is much wider than, you know, like tra- the, at least the perception of what traditional economics is about. And I think it's it's also growing and it's interacting more with other disciplines, know, with psychology, but, yeah. with sociology, with anthropology. And that's very exciting. You know, it's, it's, you know, turning more and more towards a conversation with other Branches of the social science. No,
1: that's right. Conversations is one of the most important things I think in terms of um, advancing our ideas and pushing the forefront of all um, disciplines. Um, I wanted to actually return a little bit back to uh, Vernon himself. What uh, what's what would you say would is his um, biggest influence on you? Like I know he, you know, like he by example, he's you know, like he has shown you and many others what it's like to be a good scholar a good colleague and a good teacher but I'm wondering what his specific influence would be um, on you in shaping um, the type of economist that you have
2: become Uh, wow that's a that's a good question Um, so me put two or three ways in I think the that he has influenced me one is just first of all his work ethic you know he's 91 years old (laughs) and he still shows up Every day at six a.m. at the office, oh. unless he's traveling, you know, like for uh, Liberty talks funds. or conferences <laughs> or, or Liberty funds, right? So, so that is, you know, like the passion for his work and his research. You know, it, that's just an example of uh, something that you know I, I try to emulate. Uh, the, the the second is, as I mentioned before, the the deep way in which he looks at. Uh, experimental results that goes beyond just saying like, well, you know, like, sometimes I see, or at least initially in my career, I used to see a result and say like, well, you know, like, this is, I don't know what, you know, like, this this is unexpected, so that's strange, Let's put you know, it, let's but, put it yeah, aside. Yeah, let's put it aside. He would, you know, like, look seriously and deeply at that and say like, okay, why is this turning out the way it is? And running experiments in is a humbling experience because you know many times you think okay i'm gonna run this experiment and i'm gonna uh, see these results and these differences and then you get a very different result than you originally expected and in that sense it's humbling but if you engage with the with with the data and look at it uh, and try to genuinely understand that it's individuals human beings making decisions uh no it 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 forces you to, to give a deep thought into the, the the fundamentals behind the behavior and the results that you're that you're looking at.
1: No, so my experience is also very much like that too, right? Like I um, I use a. Um, a a trust game as the second task and the first task. It's a a market game that's, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's a variant of um, an existing market that um, other experimentalists are uh, more familiar with. And as a result of that, like, there isn't, I don't get super crisp, clean results, right? Like not one, it's like, this is exactly what we set out to find, this is exactly what we find. On the fringes, there's some, there's some messiness that's going on and, some of when I would give presentations, sometimes people would be curious about that messiness, but other times um, some of the experimentalists in the crowd would be like you know look that 's not you know that 's messiness that probably means that your des- um, design was flawed and so- at some level so ignore that let 's talk about this crisp set of results that you found and it was as a graduate student i Um, You know, like I look up to all these um, PhDs and professors, so I used to not question that. Right. When they were just like, you know, like these are the things that we focus on. These are the things that we don't focus on after experiments have happened. But once I got, uh, you know, once um, I graduated and I was in the job market and um, all of that, it, it became a point of frustration for me because that was the point. That was the entire point that I wanted to make. It's like, look, you know, the, here are things. We see that uh, people recognize trustworthy people. People mm-hmm. recognize untrustworthy people. They react to it by trusting trustworthy people and not trusting untrustworthy people. But let's talk about the middle, when people don't really know mm-hmm. who, what these people are like and what strangers are like. Um, and they're just like, no. Let, you know, I was like, I want to talk about that. Like, can we talk about that? It's like, no. And that was like... Um, a, a, a deep source of frustration but at the same time I understood that that's how the discipline operated and that if I wanted to have a conversation uh, about that that I had to actually change my sort of venue a little bit where they're willing to talk about I all see. sorts of things yeah and with um, and um, there I mean there are a few places like that and of, of course Mercatus is one of them so right. um, so it's um, needless to say one of the best places in the world uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, One of the questions I wanted to ask you, like, see, like when I was choosing to come to Mason, it was like a very clear sort of progression. I went from um, as an econ major at Emory, I went to NYU for a master's and it was at my master's program at NYU where I encountered William Easterly. And he sort of recommended uh, George Mason to me. And that's how I. came here. So there was a natural sort of progression to, like, why George Mason for me, right? But how about you? Like, you, I understand you did um, business and finance as an undergraduate. So you have a similar, related, but a different um, discipline, a set of disciplines from um, economics. So what made you choose econ? And what made you choose George Mason?
2: So in my undergrad, I was originally started with econ. And kind of in the middle, I switched because I... Yeah, I was not very satisfied with the econ program at the time. Mm -hmm. But I was still taking econ courses and, you know, like going way beyond what was required for me to learn more about econ. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually I said, okay, this is really my passion. This is what I want to do. And that's when I decided to go to to grad school and and do econ. And then I chose George Mason initially. So I didn't, unlike you, I didn't have a very straight path or I didn't follow a very straight path. So I, I came to GMU. I was interested in, in Austrian and public choice.
1: Right. So, so you also did your undergrad at, um, at Francisco, Francisco
2: Marroquín. Marroquín.
1: Yeah, yes. where they do, uh, they do a lot of reading of Hayek and Mises yes. and everyone. Yes.
2: And, and one of the things that happened to me is that actually I got exposed different areas of economics here that I was not exposed at, at Francisco Marroquín. So that was kind of like my, why my path was not uh, all that straight. So then I started getting into, you know, I started a little bit exploring monetary economics. And then I discovered experimental economics, and that just really captivated me. Then, you know, like I, I started doing lab experiments. For a while, I started doing field experiments. I got interested in that. So my path has been very windy. <laughs> uh, but it's been, you know, personally satisfying in terms of at least my curiosity.
1: Now, with the winding path, though, um, so I, one of the things that I thought and I think a lot of uh, prospective and even current grad students might think is that uh, if you're pursuing a graduate study, everything is a straight path. You know exactly what you're yeah. doing and you know, um, you know what to do, what not to do, but that's Something that ex post, I realized that a lot of us end up doing, there's a lot of windy path and in fact yes. it ends up being more satisfying because you explore more things and by the time you choose what your dissertation topic will be, that's, that's the thing you've already sort of just, um, you already explored many different topics, different different um, sort of uh, fields within economics. And once you choose that, it's something that um, I don't know about you, but I stuck with working with um, morality and sociality of markets ever since I'm granted, like I'm not out uh, many years from PhD, but I foresee all, all the projects that I'm already thinking of and already um, part of, I mean, it's my dissertation topic, like all the way down. So. Um, it's actually um, super encouraging also to hear that you had this winding path, too, and probably also encouraging for a lot of other graduate students to hear, like, yeah. it's totally okay, guys, to take, you know, a windy path to take a little bit longer than what um, a lot of the professors and their um, their fellow students might say.
2: Yeah, it, it's okay. If I mean, if I can give some advice, at least some advice to my younger self, I would say take a very extreme winding path, but try to do that as early as possible. So if you can, even if you can do that before grad school, that would be ideal. So when you go to grad school, you, your path will be a lot more straight, but you will have sampled more of the different uh, fields, approaches, or even different uh, areas of social sciences. So, you, you know, you'll have more certainty to why you're, you want to head in that path. So that that's some advice I would try to give, and then perhaps the other advice is, sample not just different branches of of uh, economics and social sciences, but also try to try to learn different tools and try to you know like have a very versatile toolset to try to to be able to tackle different problems from different angles.
1: That's actually a really important point because a lot of us, especially for us who do quant- uh, who use quantitative methods, we tend to. Uh, we tend to stick to one method, right? Like, I mean, granted, like, th- it makes a lot of sense. We're more familiar with it, we know yeah. it better, we are, uh, we've been trained in it, so it's not um, un- it's not surprising that we end up doing that, but one of the things that uh, Eleanor Ostrom tried to emphasize and one of the frustrations that many of us here um, experience is the unwillingness to be flexible about the methodology and not to be sort of, um, not to, um, to think that one particular method is superior over another, and that is the only and true way to um, address some of the questions that we have.
2: Exactly. I, I, I agree. I, I mean, we should think of you know, different uh, methodological approaches as you know, p- different tools or different tool sets. And you know, some tools are more appropriate to tackle a particular question or a particular problem or at least give a different perspective on it. So I think the different methodological approaches and different tools, I see them more as complements than as substitutes. We tend to, you know, as you were saying, we tend to uh, follow a particular methodological tool, which is the one we're most familiar with, and tend to see that as you know, the superior methodology and everything else is an is a imperfect substitute of, of this. I think we should take a broader approach and see them as more, more as complements than as substitutes.
1: So we're here. Um, it's nice and early in the morning. It's um, something like eight oh five. We started our conversation at seven thirty in the morning. We're actually here for um, a colloquium on culture and to have a discussion on how uh, we um, how we should think about culture, how we can uh, we can um, sort of study culture um, in economics and sociology and different um, different what is it disciplines. Um, You and I have chosen to use experiments to um, study culture um, and its various um, aspects. The question I want to ask is what um, other methods do you think we can use in order to explore a little bit more about culture? Maybe not perfectly, it might be imperfect, right? Like we need to admit that I think one of the things that uh, hubris of um, scholars is that we tend to not want to admit that there are some pitfalls to our methodology that we're not able to make over uh, like sweeping claims about culture but my um, my we sometimes do fall into that and uh, talk about how one study or one series of studies might say about a whole variety of cultures um, so what so what me- uh, what other methods do you think we can think about using in order to imperfectly Uh, study culture maybe perfectly study culture (laughs)
2: Uh, that's a good question so in I I think we have I think culture is uh, very important it has gained more attention in economics you know in in the past few decades but it's still an underexplored topic right Um, I think we have a lot to learn from anthropologists cult- cultural anthropologists who are you know who are doing real work exploring you know like the extreme variation in cultures that one can see in small- scale societies um, I'm I try to use experimental methods as you mentioned to try to explore that but but I think you know that's that's probably just uh, we're just scratching the surface mm-hmm. and I think you know as more people try to think about how to use different methods the this will become more more prevalent so for instance i think uh agent-based modeling could right. be another way of, yeah. of trying to study culture
1: oh yeah because we definitely cannot watch an evo- uh, evolution of culture in yeah. a short amount of time i mean yeah. we probably need to encapsulate ourselves and time travel and all of that um so you're absolutely right like i am um, agent-based modeling would be one of them i think i actually was thinking that um, some of the other ones that we could think of that um, since you mentioned anthropologists, there's ethno, um, ethnographies that uh, yeah. we can tap into to investigate how cultures evolve and how that's impacting people's uh, economic and non-economic um, decisions. Yeah, that's um, right.
2: I mean, you, you can uh, I think the way you, you put it, you know, you can use ethnographic methods to try to zoom in a particular mm. culture and try to explore its richness uh while you can use other types of methods to, to kind of like zoom out and try to see you know like the the variation or you know like the big picture you know like ignoring sort of like the the richness in the details right so it yeah. depends on what kind of perspective you want to No that's
1: right at. and I think um it might um, also be dictated by the types of questions that you're asking, right? Like maybe right. Uh, all you want to see is how are different cultures different in this aspect, in which case you don't really, I mean, I guess you could have a fuller, richer story by doing ethnographies, but that doesn't necessitate a uh, such a study. Maybe you can just use an experiment, or maybe you can just use existing econometric um, sort of models and data right. to investigate all of that. Or maybe what you really want to know is, hey, let's figure out how this particular, um, institution has um, emerged from this type of um, environment, if we can have a better understanding of that, then maybe just maybe we can have a better understanding of why it's not working over there or um, things like
2: that. Yeah, that's right. So in in, in this sense, I think also anthropologists have started using tools of of economics so you know they use yeah. quantitative yeah. analysis yeah. regressions but you, you also have you know like uh anthropologists like uh joe henrich doing yeah, experiments right. in small scale no, societies that's right. uh hillard kaplan also uses experiments you know, he's an anthropologist that uses experiments to try to explore you know how people behave re- uh, regarding health decisions so you know again as i was saying i think the I think this kind of rich interdisciplinary conversation is really important and you know there's a lot to learn from other areas uh, of the social sciences no that's absolutely
1: right and I don't um and um you know there are the the um unfortunate part is not only in economics but uh, and also this other disciplines we don't encourage that kind of discussion to happen all that often and we might for instance call something interdisciplinary but it is ends up being dominated by a particular discipline so the conversations yes. turn a certain way which then sort of um, disinterests um, people who are not of that discipline that conversation and they sort of so there's a natural sort of um, uh, in uh, type of uh, forces that happen right like we might that ends up being a certain type of uh, conversation as opposed to a true interdisciplinary uh, conversation.
2: Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, and you know, I, I think especially, you know, like in conventional mainstream economics, you know, it's, uh, it's, more difficult to appreciate you know what you can learn from from other disciplines and I'm I'm just assuming that that's going to be similar you know like in the mainstream of this other discipline but you know as you move a little bit towards the edge or towards the fringe then I think it's you you get a little bit of this more rich environment where you know you're able to talk to people from other disciplines, more as equals, uh, as partners, instead of seeing them as a you know like a more quote unquote primitive uh, discipline or primitive area of the social sciences. Right.
1: Um, if if you could, you know, um, inspire. Um, I am sure you I, I mean, you definitely inspire uh, younger graduate students and all of that. But if you could really dictate um, Mm -hmm. the types of questions that they uh, should be exploring or questions that you think are sorely underexplored and you wish to see um, sometime in the future um, being uh, discussed and everything um, in journals and all that, what might be some of them?
2: Okay, so, so what questions they should be exploring? I think they should be exploring the questions that really interest them and they're really passionate about. The type of questions that I'm really interested about right now, it's, uh, I'm trying to explore norms as a particular aspect of culture and how that influences institutions, especially formal institutions. So I think norms lie at the heart of uh, formal institutions. So, so we know that institutions are really important, but we have less knowledge about what determines institutions, how institutions change and evolve, and you know that we know that they change through time and, but but what are the micro uh, mechanisms that allow them to change and what are the underpinning uh, aspects of them Uh, how social norms or how how aspects outside of the main economic variables affect institutions so let, let, let me give you an example so we know that institutions you know are rules those rules tend to be enforced by individuals but what motivates an individual to enforce a rule and to apply sanctions when they need to be applied, mm-hmm. right? Of, of, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of formal rules, a formal institution. Now you can say, well, you know, there's another rule that forces this person to enforce and sanction the rule. But again, that's just pushing the, the question uh, back one level, right? In, in the end, you, you're you stuck with the question, okay, but who guards the guardians, right? right? So, right. so in the end, <laughs> there has to be some aspect of culture, norms, values, or moral beliefs that forces an, an individual to enforce a rule, uh, even when it's costly for them to do so, or when they would prefer to shirk and not exert effort to enforce a rule. Now, this, this has been recognized uh, by many people.
1: Yeah, no, So actually, you are touching on something that um, I'm also interested in and um, things that, you know, I'm con- like whenever I see it, ha- um, see it mentioned and like who polices the police. Whenever yes. that kind of topic arises in mass media and popular media, I'm just like, you know, like that's an interesting question. Um, but we're I, but something about that question always bugged me. Right. And I, I think one of the things that we need to also consider is that we don't need a specific group of people like who we see as authority policing the police right like we can we can think about it as we as individuals as citizens of these countries that we live in we can also keep them accountable we can tell them um through various methods uh, for instance through um through news, our sort of um, um, and other activities, we can also be telling authority uh, members of authority to say, "Look, we're not okay with the types of decisions that you've made." Of course, we don't know the smaller decisions that we, made, but we see like the sort of um, the general flavor, right, of the th- and the general tone of the different um, rules that we have created. So, I think it's really important, and um, and that your research is really important to speak to how um, how. Um, internally, we can, um, we can induce or we can sort of encourage change to the rules of the games, the institutions that we live in.
2: Right. And, and I think you, you brought a, a very good example, right? So, you know, police here are, uh, they should act according to certain formal rules. Now, recently it's become evident of uh, different series of uh, abuses by the police on different domains and but those are not just happening randomly. There are sets of values and social norms that lie uh, behind those types of abuses. Why those abuses are protected instead of being persecuted. So so that's kind of like what I'm what I'm trying to to get at, or why I think studying social norms is important. Because in the end, that's what determines what type of formal institutions are implemented and you know like what type of informal institutions or informal rules end up being applied even when they i contradict the, the formal rules or the formal no
1: institutions. that's um no that's absolutely right and um, most importantly it's not just the formal rules that shape our con- conduct and behavior and decisions it's also the people that we talk to the 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 fear that we have, for instance, right, that our friends might not like us anymore if we do a certain thing. So those, you know, many different factors, not just econ, sort of like the way we traditionally think about as economic incentives. um, Those are not the only things that are shaping our behavior. And and obviously those micro steps and those micro decisions that every individual um, is making, that's important because that will, on aggregate, direct, the um, the way and uh, the direction in which our culture, our institutions, our country is going to um, go down.
2: Yeah, that, that that's absolutely right, and I think, I, I think you're right. I think the role of the informal institutions, you know, like made, is really important. Not only when you go to developing countries where that have you know, weak. Uh, or even absent uh, formal rules. But even, you know, like in, in developed uh, economies, as we were talking about with the example of the police, right? right. They have very explicit rules, but right. a lot of those rules are simply ignored. And, uh, you know, ignoring the rules seems to be okay or seems to be, you know, allowed or socially no. acceptable, at no. least on that's some right. dimensions among amongst the police. No,
1: that's right. Um, I grew up in Indonesia, and I was um, living there when... Uh, um, so was um, in power and watched uh, was, uh, watched sort of you know his um, downfall. I guess that's um, how I would put it the The attitude that the police had before and after is completely different, and I attribute that to not only the um, the uh, what is it the uh, the latitude that Um, the government was giving them but it's also the way that the citizens were seeing them right like um, under Soardo, they were uh, essentially part of the military so they were they were very afraid to sort of counter them because they realized like crap they um, they are um, they're part of the military they have immense physical power to really uh, stop me from doing things and to really inflict harm upon me so they had a lot of fear against um, the police and now once um, the Asian crisis happened and once, um, you know, Suharto was no longer uh, the president and um, all of that, you could see the citizens slowly changing their perspective and their sort of interpretation of what um, police is allowed to do and not. And there's now a lot of pushback uh, from this uh, on the side of the citizens. There's also a lot of um, uh, sort of... Um, Exp- like a very explicit discontent about the way police is behaving so now the police is also behaving differently they are um, they seem to be moving towards more of a uh, what uh, what a police would uh, you would traditionally think a police would do as opposed to you know them being the um, a surrogate of a um, dictatorship's military I see.
2: yeah that, that that's interesting because I mean I, I think you're talking about, or, or the way at least I interpret this is sort of like what explains the dynamics and changes and shifts mm-hmm. in, in, in norms and values or, you know, like in, in you can call it culture more more right. generally, right? Which is a, uh, you know, profound question that needs, be, you know, like uh, detailed answers.
1: No, that's right. Um, and um, I the main takeaway um, I have today from our conversation is that it, there's multiple and alternative solutions to um, to understanding human behavior and how we can actually shape them. Right, like we we traditionally and we um, we sort of conventionally like to think there's only top down solutions, but there's also bottom up solutions, and it's not just authority figures or author, um, or or their tools that can um, that can hold people accountable. We ourselves as citizens, individuals, who we popularly think not uh, to have not so much power collectively we do and we can actually make sure that um you know we hold our own leaders and national leaders um accountable well i think we're uh, close to that time so um, thank you so much diego for joining us on this um, wonderful conversation thank you for having me